Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today's guest has led an extraordinary life of service. He's taught math in high-need schools, founded a company in East Africa, worked as an attorney at a leading global law firm, and served in Iraq as a diplomat. Then he got elected to office and his challenges really began. Newcastle, Delaware County Executive Matthew Meyer won a stunning upset over a three-term incumbent in his first run for office. Since then, he's done some really innovative work in creating a coding academy and a jobs program for at-risk youth. He's weeded out fraud, waste, and abuse and made his county's budget much more transparent. He's such an interesting guy who's dedicated to making sure his time on earth is well spent. It was a fun conversation. Enjoy. County Executive Matthew Meyer, welcome to an honorable profession. It is great to be talking to somebody at the most important level of government today. Thank you, Ryan. It's great to be here. I am a, a big fan and listener of an honorable profession. And it's great to, uh, great to finally be on here. So I got to start by asking... Your career path has to be one of the most interesting career paths, not just of anyone I've had on the podcast, but of anyone I've met generally. Been a math teacher, lawyer, diplomat, now an elected official. Can you talk a little bit about sort of your life and path into public service? Yeah, you know, my mom's still waiting for me to pick a a career. (laughs) When you're all grown up. Yeah, when when I grow up one day. Listen, the easiest thing to say is I've been driven by two things. One is compassion, uh, our ability, all of our individual abilities to make a difference in someone else's life and to leave a mark on this planet in the short time that we're here. And also by innovation, all of our ability to work together, to, to move the ball forward, to look at old problems in new ways. I've tried to do that in places as far away as the Korogocho slums of Nairobi, Kenya, where I started a, a footwear company when I was what, 23 years old with uh, young adults from one of the poorest neighborhoods I've ever been to, to being a diplomat in Iraq, where we we're trying to use farming, new farming techniques and creative business, small business lending to diffuse violence or right here in Wilmington, Delaware where I came back and taught sixth and seventh grade math using a lot of vocabulary, which some of you may know. I think it's still out there, some rap music to, to teach uh, how to divide fractions and things uh, of that sort. I, when I came back from serving as a diplomat, I really felt strange because on one hand, I'd spent a year in service to the country in partnership with uh, our military partners who I was living with in Mosul. Iraq training 
local governments in Iraq how to operate. And I came back and felt like here in Delaware, we could do a lot better in running our own local government. Uh, I felt like the kids that I was teaching uh, really deserve better shot and more equal opportunity. And so I kind of out of the blue ran for office. I'd done a number of things, as you mentioned, started a couple of small businesses, taught for four years in public school, elementary and middle school level, uh, but I never run for office. So I just got a small team together. We had really three uh, high school and college student volunteers, neither of whom I knew that well. And the four of us would go out every day and knock on doors. And in the course of about six months through cold, I'm not out in, in uh, Santa Cruz, California. Here in Delaware, it gets pretty cold over the winter on cold days, and it gets pretty hot in the summer. And on the hottest, most humid days, we knocked on doors, knocked on nearly 10,000 doors over the course of six months and just spread a message of innovation and compassion. And we managed to beat a three-term incumbent back in 2016. That is amazing. I want to get a little bit into the story of that campaign and then your first years in office. But I guess we have some young listeners out there who are maybe in college or right out of college. How did you identify these opportunities? And then sort of what was the most fun part about each one of these experiences or interesting parts that you had for maybe some young people out there who were listening and trying to find their their path? Ryan, I am scared to death of heights. When uh, I just actually was out at Disneyland with my nephew and my brother and uh, the, the scary rides are not my favorite, but in hindsight, the, the things I've done where I wake up in the morning and say, what am I doing? Like everybody said, don't do this. What am I doing? I'm really putting myself out there at risk. I'm doing something really different from what any of my classmates or peers are doing. Those are the things that in hindsight were, have been the most rewarding. And that goes from, you know, being in Kenya and sort of expected to be sort of an aid worker and give some money and help out and leave to saying, no, I think what they really need is for me to work with them to start a small business in a poor neighborhood and just delving into a product. We made sandals out of used tires and ended up selling tens of thousands of them all over the world getting on CNN, Al Jazeera, they profiled us as sort of one of the first dot-com e-commerce stories. At the time, it was very challenging. Crime there was incredible. We would have Kenyan police come in uh, right after a big sale and they literally take the shirts off of our workers because they were poor kids who had worked and were able to earn a decent living and buy some nicer clothes. And the cops didn't like that because they were the, the poor kids, quote unquote, were making more than the cops. So they ripped the shirts off their back. And that at the time I was there as a 23, 24 year old kid was was panic for me. And it was trying to figure things out and how to negotiate things. But in hindsight, the learning that I had about the world, about people, about how we treat each other, how do you solve that problem. How do you get into the mind of a police officer over there on the other side of the world who feels like he's mistreated? And why is that person doing what they're doing? That really gave me a power, a strength and understanding that I certainly carry into my work today. That's an amazing story when you talk about crime and you and it's the police force that are perpetuating it right directly after you make a sale. Uh, that's, that's an amazing story. Can you talk a little bit about how you found yourself in Iraq? Yeah, so I, I did a stint as a lawyer. I worked at a, a large law firm 
in New York and went into private equity. And I, at the time, we were fighting two wars, one in Afghanistan and another in Iraq. Of course, thanks in large part to former Newcastle County Councilman, now President Joe Biden, were, were in neither of those wars. But I, I, I was not particularly supportive of either of those wars, but I really was a strong believer that if anyone's going to go to war, we all should go to war. I really, there was a palpable sense being in, in a very comfortable place financially that uh, kids who wanted to, who didn't have money to go to college, who wanted the GI Bill, were going to fight wars. Occasional volunteers were going to fight wars, but it by and large was an economic thing where, where those who sort of grew up on the wrong side of the tracks were forced into into war financially. I didn't think that was right. I raised my hand to go and help out. I looked at joining the military. That didn't make nearly as much sense. It would have taken a lot longer than signing up for diplomatic service. So I signed up on a special assignment to go into Mosul, Iraq, where I was working on something called a provincial reconstruction team. When the war first started, much of our effort outside the military diplomatically in terms of aid was centered in Baghdad. Iraq, like in any country, has a lot more activity outside the capital city than they do inside the capital city. So they set up, I think it was 19 provincial reconstruction teams. So we were working. It was a combined USAID military and diplomatic team working with local Iraqi officials to build the local economy, to build the local governing structure, structure to build health and schools. And so that's what I was doing for a year. We were talking about sort of advice for young people. I think let's let's talk uh, let's let's go to us us who are more in midlife or later in life no matter how hard we pretend we aren't. And this idea of changing careers and making a commitment to public service. Tell me how you thought about that and how you decide, you know, where to to apply your talents and your time. I can imagine there's there might be some folks working in private equity or working for a big law firm listening to this podcast. What sort of advice do you have for them about seeking a career in public service in the variety of different forms that you've you've done it? Well, Ryan, you know, thanks to my my many teachers growing up and particularly my parents, you know, mentors of mine, I've always wanted to leave this earth having made a contribution to my community, to maybe the country as a whole. And that's really what drives me. I've always had an understanding that I can, you know, make 30 or $40,000 a year, or I can make 30 or 40 million or $4 billion a year. And that at the end of the day, doesn't have nearly as much meaning as the mark we make on each other. Uh, we now have tools, and I especially got this from living at a young age in Kenya as an American kid who studied computer science in college that went to Kenya. We have all these extraordinary tools to bring each other together, to bridge differences that were unbridgeable, to create understanding and communicate across cultures, languages, generations, unlike ever before. And if we're able to do that, that power, both within our community here in Newcastle County, Delaware, and cross-culturally and internationally, across international borders, across nationalities, is a power that will unleash 
a, a new wave of sort of human existence. I think that is so much more powerful than we what we have known historically. Another thing, like when you when you spend time in a place like Kenya, where in Kenya, at least when I lived there in the 90s, nearly everyone was immediately identified by Kenyans as from the Kikuyu tribe or from the Luo tribe or from the Luya tribe or from the Kamba tribe. It determined where you lived, where you worked, the food you ate, how you dressed. And one thing that makes me so proud in America, and I think and I hope, I pray in a rapidly changing America, is that while we have those tribal existences here, there's no doubt. It's not hard to see that those tribes in some way, shape and form still exist here. There are abilities to interact, to go to school together, to work together, to communicate across tribal lines that when you look historically in our country, we always we have not always had the opportunity to do. And that's a perfect transition into, I'd like to know like how you take all this life experience and how you've applied it to your work as an elected official to solve problems, to build bridges, but literally and uh, metaphorically in your community. What's that been like and how do the challenges compare and how are they different? I had an opportunity, you know, really once in a lifetime, incredible opportunities to go and live in a small town in East Africa, an incredible opportunity to to work side by side with our military heroes in Iraq. And then you come home and you find right here in Delaware, in Wilmington, Delaware, I saw as a teacher how many families were really struggling and hurting, did not have anything resembling the American opportunity that I talk about to Kenyans and to Iraqis that, that, you know, single parents who are working crazy three jobs, working, you know, 18 hour days and are struggling to make ends meet. And so you try to figure out how do I take the incredible opportunity of this world we live in, the incredible technologies that are being leveraged to do things that we had never imagined as humans we'd ever have the opportunity to do. And how do we leverage that to, to benefit those people right here in Delaware, right here in our communities across this country who are really hurting and struggling and deserve that same sort of the, the, the fruits of technology and the fruits of innovation that so many others around our country and around our world are, are getting a chance to experience. Tell us about some of the policies that you're looking at in Delaware, in Newcastle County, to bridge that divide and create some of those opportunities. So one of the first things I did was I believed strongly as a school teacher who had worked as a computer programmer and had not just worked as a computer programmer, but had seen when I was training in computer science in college, the career path was you train as a programmer and then you apply to a Silicon Valley firm, a Microsoft now, you know, a Facebook, a Google, a TikTok to, to work as a software developer. But what I've seen is that banks, financial services, by and large, were becoming technology companies. And with Bitcoin and cyber currencies, that's even becoming more true. The insurance industry, right, which often was door to door and very sort of relationship based, more and more becoming technology. One by one, I feel like industries are sort of falling to technology or, or, or sort of leaning more and more 
on technology. So I really believe that technology education is a basic part of what our kids should be getting in school to prepare them for today's and tomorrow's world. We created a program called A Thousand Kids Coding. The reality here in Delaware, as I think is true in many parts of the country, is that many families who have resources and have money have that early age exposure to programming. Kids from poor environments rarely have that opportunity, in part because the schools in which they go are so stretched for resources. They don't have the resources to recruit a high-quality software developer to teach uh, software development or, or networking or things of that sort. So kids have to wait until they're finished high school or beyond to start learning some of those skills. Our program, A Thousand Kids Coding, takes a thousand middle school students, students by and large of color, who are from lower income neighborhoods across our county and trains them in software development skills so that they can develop software for money by the time they finish our program. And they're doing that for small businesses. So we have all these small businesses in need of software development, networking support, and can't afford it. And we're developing a supply of labor for them to do that. Of course, that supply of labor is our students who then can go on and hopefully go and work for other companies, earn a decent living, or even start their own. That is fantastic. And for people who want to see more, this program, the 1,000 Kids Coding, was uh, a New Deal idea that's available on the New Deal website. Another idea of yours that I thought was fascinating is the Second Chance Scholars Program, where you use data to identify at-risk youth to offer them specific employment and an alternative to maybe some uh, criminal activity that 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 may be, you know, calling to them and giving them a positive experience. Can you talk a little bit about that? So my experience teaching, and I know a lot of parents out there are familiar with this as well, is when you tell a child, don't do that, there is a sizable percentage of children that will do that. So if you say, don't play that video game or stop taking Michael's pencil, that kid, the first thing they're going to want to do is watch that video game or they're going to want to take Michael's pencil. I learned as a teacher, the thing to do is instead create another cool thing that they want to do more. And, you know, in the best case, it's a cool educational thing. And so what we're trying to do is remove barriers to opportunity across our county. Uh, nowhere better than than scholarships and education. It's a little embarrassing when you think of all the things we can do today in 2022, literally sending rockets into the sky and then landing them again to send up to the heavens again. Like if you think about the technology and human capital put in to get to a point where we can do something like that, it's crazy to think we can't provide basic health care to everyone in our country. We cannot provide basic education. There are so many kids, quality uh, students who are finishing high school who don't go to college because they don't have something called money, which is crazy to me. So we're doing everything we can. We took what was previously sort of a political slush fund and we turned it into a scholarship fund. We identify pockets of, of need. We market to those pockets and we encourage kids to apply to the scholarship fund. So again, it's just unlocking opportunity that we believe that we say in 2022, everyone should have an equal opportunity of, but in reality, the reality on the ground that I know myself 
and a lot of my local official colleagues see across this country is that that equal opportunity is really not quite there. Yeah. And I thought what was extraordinary with the program is so often we create these programs and not surprisingly, the the parents who are sort of paying attention or the kids who, who go to the better resource schools get plugged into these programs. But you really made a conscious effort to use data from the CDC to to get to go to the kids, right? To go to the kids who would most benefit from these programs. Yeah, I mean, every Ryan, you know, we all know as local elected officials, there's always sort of the loudest people in the room. And I'm constantly working to make sure that the the loudest in our democracy, the loudest in our communities are not getting a disproportionate amount of resources. I encourage everyone to speak up, make sure your your voice is heard. It's important and incumbent upon us as elected officials to make sure that we're spreading the benefits of this American experience equally and even disproportionately to those communities that are of greatest need. And that takes that takes a lot of work. It's not that easy. If you just yeah, sit that, back and wait wait for who comes to you, it's not going to be equal. It's not going to be equitable. Yeah, and I think that's and it, and I and I appreciate that you used a a data-based approach to it cuz cuz we can sort of sort of try to guess, but you're right in a world of technological advances, we can identify populations that are most at risk and and make sure we're we're getting out to them. And related to that, Ryan, if I can add one more thing, yeah. it's really important in so in having worked sort of in the private and public sector, the private sector, when they invest money in something, at least uh, quality companies, quality institutions, quality organizations often have metrics attached to that. So let's say my experience in the private sector, when there's a, a $1 million program that is to be developed, usually private sector, smart companies, smart institutions will say, okay, let's take $200,000 and start this program. Using this $200,000, we expect to achieve these three things. They'll invest $200,000 and three months later, two months later, six months later, a year later, they'll look and say, which of these three things are we achieving and how are we not achieving them? And then, uh, you know, course correct. So that by the time the million dollars is expended, they've achieved the things they expected to achieve at the outset, or in many cases, they, they uh, outpace those things. They more than, than achieve them. Too often in the public sector, my experience is that money is expended. There's a press conference. There's an announcement. Everyone celebrates. And years later, there's very little analysis into whether that actually achieved what it was expected to achieve. So it's important to me, particularly with educational investments, how do we make sure, okay, we're investing this money to make sure a thousand kids coding. Who's counting the kids? Who's measuring to make sure, yes, they actually have the skill set we were expecting them to get. And for the public shareholder, for the public investor, for the taxpayer, they're getting a quality return on their investment. I want to dive in a little bit because you have used your private sector experience to not only propose scale and then measure and get results from programs, but you've also gone in and tried to save taxpayer dollars where there was waste, fraud, and abuse or overpayments or other things. We all know that business is very different than government, but I don't think our party spends enough time talking about how to make 
the money in government we have spent better. Can you talk about your efforts to root out waste, fraud, and abuse and to get the most for the taxpayer dollar? Sure. So it's two things. There's sort of the the uncontroversial stuff and the controversial stuff. The uncontroversial stuff, I think, is is using technology and attrition to perform services more efficiently. We, for example, about two years before COVID hit in 2017, 2018, made some pretty sizable technological investments to adopt across our county government over 2,000 employees, something called Microsoft Teams. At the time, nobody knew what this was, right? It created extraordinary efficiencies in people being able to do more meetings and do more things during each day. And at some level enabled us to do more tasks with fewer people, which saves the taxpayer dollar. It's something that nobody would have ever paid any attention to, uh, except for the fact when COVID hit and we shut down county government, we didn't really do it. We just told people you can't come to offices anymore, but you're expected to keep doing your job. And so whereas other governments across our state and across our country shut down, we just sort of transitioned to this new online world and pretty much did it at the flick of a switch or not just turning on your computer. So that's one thing. The harder questions are questions when entrenched interests get a disproportionate amount of the, of the pie. What Madison called in Federalist number 10 is the violence of factions, that they're entrenched. If you don't mind me referencing the Federalist papers when I talk about <laughs> governing Newcastle County in 2022. If there's any audience that would love a good Federalist reference, it's the honorable profession uh, audience, trust me. I think all of us, and I know the honorable profession, they're, they're, I mean, if any of like, I, I'm an avid listener. I imagine many of the listeners out there are, are local government elected officials or local government participants, local government nerds, if you will, like me. And I think all of us are familiar with the violence of faction, small groups that are able to control a disproportionate amount of resources, either through money, through campaign contributions, or just through through showing up all the time and paying attention where the public at large is too busy living their lives to pay attention to a zoning hearing or what's going on with their sewer bill or things of that sort. And I think that's where the integrity and the intelligence of local elected officials is so critical. Uh, former Governor Jack Markell, who I believe was a was a founder of the New Deal, taught me that so many times as governor, he'd be sitting at a table and he'd look around the table and think about how did each person seated at the table get their seat at that table in his office when they came to speak to him. And by and large, nearly everyone was representing some entrenched interest that was trying to get a disproportionate piece of the taxpayer pie. And he said it was his seat. It was his job to make sure the overwhelming majority of the public that was not represented at the table was represented. And that can be hard when you're in a meeting and seven people are all agreeing saying one thing. That means I, as the elected official, often have to say, no, you know, that's not good for the whole. And that may mean that you lose money or that may anger you or that may anger your membership or the group you're lobbying. But the answer is no. And that may mean that those people don't contribute to my next political campaign, but that's okay. That's why I do what I do. And I, I like to tell my staff that if you didn't piss anyone off today, you're not really doing your job. I love that. It's such a resonant 
idea of thinking who's at the table and who's trying to get more resources than what you know than than what the the broader public would otherwise get that's it's a vital question that every elected official or i mean everyone in with any level of decision making should be thinking about at all times um it's a very good lesson could we talk a little bit about delaware the first state as 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 you're all known and it has a great new deal connection as you mentioned jack markell chris coons and former county executive Chris former, Coons and former, Chris former county council person, Joe Biden. That's right. <laughs> yes. And, and getting to the president of the United States, Joe Biden. What do you think it is about Delaware that produces people who have a disproportionately large impact on the national political stage than the state's population might otherwise allow? I think it's the water. <laughs> Definitely the water. It's something we're drinking Careful, you're gonna have a bunch of presidential candidates showing up and drinking all your water. Yeah, that's right. We'll have no water left, and then I'll have to deal with the budget deficit. Yeah, you're right. You know, it's interesting. Delaware, in some ways, is a microcosm of the country. If you look at the percentage of our state that's African American, percentage that's Latino, percentage that's rural, suburban, urban, a lot of the issues of farmland preservation of urban education, of busing, I mean, pretty of, of beach preservation. We had tornadoes, I think it was two years ago, that we had to deal with sort of natural disasters, flooding and climate change as a coastal state is having a pretty serious impact here. And so I don't know if it's that that, that sort of calls or creates opportunity for leaders to, to serve and to address problems that resonate nationwide. I don't know if that's what it is, or I don't know if it's just we're, we're having a moment, maybe in the, because Joe Biden sort of gave us a vision of here's, here's how you do it. You start in Newcastle County and work your way up. And so we're all trying to start in Newcastle County and work, work our way up. So make a pitch in this world of uh, remote work, or hopefully very soon, more opportunities to travel if I have 24 hours to spend or if I'm looking to, to find a new place to live, sell me on Newcastle County and Delaware. So first of all, for a company, I don't know where you can get a better financial proposition than Delaware. The cost of land and, and taxation levels are so low compared to neighboring and uh, states and jurisdictions, lo- local jurisdictions across the region access to talent. You are a a day trip to New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, DC. There are many people that live here that commute to New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and DC because of some dynamics of fiber uh, and fiber being laid here. Our internet in certain areas of the county is as fast as anywhere in, in the country or the world and it's the quality of life is really high. We are building, we're on building at least 50 miles of additional bike trail. I'm working to connect all the major cities of our county so that you can walk and bike between all the major cities. Some beautiful bike routes along rivers. Uh, Governor Markell created a trail named after him, the, the Jack Markell trail that already connects Wilmington, uh, which is our largest city 
with Old Newcastle, which is our, our colonial capital. It's like a little Williamsburg. If you're familiar with Williamsburg, Virginia, it's like a six and a half mile ride from our largest city along a beautiful bike trail over, over the Christina, actually over one river that ends at another river in a beautiful park. The quality of life here is incredibly high. You get a huge amount of land for value and it's a good community culture. So I don't know, I'm a big fan. There's the, the food here is amazing. There's a new sound stage developing that's building actually a, a, one of the biggest stage builders that builds stages all across the country has sort of its, its model stage here. So you can come see some leading performances acts are coming through here as sort of like a dress rehearsal before they go out. That is fantastic. I'm sold. Maybe not in February, but uh, I am so- certainly sold for, uh, for late spring for sure. Matthew Meyer, I can't wait to see what you do next in Newcastle County for the rest of us that, to model and copy and steal uh, that we can apply in our own communities. But then what you do next in this wide ranging commitment to public service that you have that uh, that benefits all of us and benefiting communities around the world. Uh, it's going to be exciting to watch. Thanks, Ryan. One thing I can guarantee you is that, number one, I've learned in my five years as county executive, this is indeed an honorable profession. And as I go forward, I will be continuing to listen to an honorable profession to learn lessons to help uh, move Newcastle County and Delaware forward. I like it. I like it. I'll take the plug uh, anytime. And you are you are engaging honorably in this profession. And we all were very grateful. Thanks, Ryan. On a serious note, can I just close with with one thing that we are really at a critical time right now. Our country, when you talk to people in political spaces, when I talk to friends and neighbors about what they're seeing in terms of governance and politics, we're at a critical point as divisive as this country has probably seen since the civil rights movement, possibly since the Civil War, there are a lot of smart people that think, uh, certainly in the wake of January 6th, that our country is falling apart in one way, shape, or form. You take that fact, you add to it the fact that as local officials, we now have more resources at our fingertips than really ever before in terms of the American Rescue Plan Act, any remnants of the CARES Act. The infrastructure bill, hopefully something that's going to come of build back better. There are all these resources and pockets for us to use as local government officials to really bring people together, to bring communities together, regardless of your political persuasion or opinion, regardless of who you support on a national level, to build meaningful things and create meaningful change in our communities that families for families that really, really need it, that you and I, I know, see every day really need for things to be different. So uh, I know I'm committed to that. And that's one thing I love about New Deal brings people together to talk about how do we make these theoretical ideas reality on the ground for Americans. I yeah, I couldn't agree more. And And it feels like the stakes have never been higher, both in getting better outcomes for our citizenry, as well as rebuilding the foundations of our democracy, essentially, as as it's being threatened on a nearly hourly basis by uh, by some pretty terrible forces, by some of those factions that uh, that the Federalist Papers worried about. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's it's incredible to to see the foresight of the founders. I don't know if they, you know, knew about Facebook or Fox News or Newsmax. (laughs) But they certainly 
you know, understood division and understood nation building and understood the importance that we all have as elected officials to hold this fragile union together. Yeah. And to fight against tyranny is, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be critical. I look, I think that's a, that is an amazing call to arms that you are offering. And, and let me just say from one County level person to another, in many ways, uh, it's the level of government that people think the least about, but it, for what the project that you envision and the project this country needs, it, 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 much of it could start at the county level. And I appreciate the good work that you're doing there so that the rest of us can, can model those programs and policies in our community. Thank you, Ron. I, I know you're not going to follow our lead with regard to snow removal out in the <laughs> but maybe some other things. Yeah, other things, other things. Snow. I'll I'll leave the snow. Uh, hopefully, hopefully to you all. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Matthew. Have a wonderful day. All right. Thanks, Ryan. You too. Thanks for listening to an honorable profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcast. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.